0: Yes, 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 yes. I don't know why I keep saying yes, yes, every time we start one of these things, but it's uh, what I've done so far, so I'll continue to do it. Uh, It is the Tim McKernan Show. Welcome in. Uh, I believe this is going to be episode three. I don't know if it really matters to anybody that we're keeping a numerical count on them. And who knows, there may be an emergency podcast that has to go up where I just spew like a volcano hot takes all over. But as things stand right now... Uh, this is an interview that I have been looking forward to doing for a very long time. Uh, and to give you, the audience, some, some background, um, you know, uh, for those of you not familiar with uh, what I do for uh, my main job, uh, I host a uh, sports talk radio show in St. Louis, and uh, it's not necessarily hardcore sports. I would say it's maybe about 15% sports. Uh, and it's been going on since 2004 and it it can get weird at times. Uh, it can get, uh, to the point where some people say, oh, I can't listen to it when I'm with my uh, kids in the car and that's fine as always to each their own. And in the course of the discussion on the show, uh, I have talked about my, uh, view on religion, talked about my view on politics And uh, it always goes kind of back to the same thing, the golden rule, treat others how you would want to be treated and, um, you know, to each their own. That's where I am on things. Uh, And so when I began having, I guess it's fair to say, I hope I can say this, I hope he would consider it the same way, a rapport, uh, perhaps it would be too strong to say a friendship, but certainly a rapport with former Senator Jack Danforth, former United States ambassador to the United States Nations, uh, Jack Danforth. Uh, it wasn't something we were discussing publicly that we were going to lunch or that we had, uh, done some kind of test interviews for him when he was about to go on in his book tour, uh, in 2015, it was just something that was going on. But then the handful of people who knew about it were like, okay, what in the world is Jack Danforth doing, hanging out with you? Uh, fair question. Absolutely. Fair question. I I can't blame them for that. Uh, And I'm sure some people were wondering, well, why are you such a huge fan of Jack Danforth based on the weird things that we have seen you write or heard you say on the radio over the years? And I get that. And I guess that's why I love this rapport friendship so much, because if anything, it can convey that even if two people are incredibly different, if you have a civil discussion you can find certainly common ground and ideally build from that. And I think that's his whole message. I could be wrong on that. I don't want to put words in his mouth. You're going to hear from him for about 60 minutes, and and you can deduce that on your own, but that's certainly my takeaway. And the thing that I find fascinating about Jack Danforth is, here's a man who is an ordained Episcopal priest who has written a book, Faith in Politics, in which he, I'm going to use the word condemns, he probably would describe it as being critical of the religious rights impact on his party, the Republican Party. And so the reason why I became such a fan is because I thought, man, this takes some courage to say something that certainly is not going to be very well-received by many people in his party. And this is a man who, as you will hear, and we get into detail on it over the course of the interview, who was very close to being President George H. W. Bush's running mate in 1988. And he may have been even closer to being President George W. Bush's running mate in 2000. So this isn't a guy on the fringe. This is... A mainstream guy who has great deal of respect, not just from Republicans, but also from Democrats. But either way, to write what he wrote in 2006 in Faith and Politics, uh, in which he said, for example, as a senator, I worried every day about the size of the federal deficit. I did not spend a single minute worrying about the effect of gays on the institution of marriage. Today, it seems to be the other way around. That was an op-ed he wrote in the New York Times and then in Faith and Politics, which I read right when it came out. uh, He said, uh, whether religion is a divisive or reconciling force depends on our certainty or our humility as we practice our faith in our politics. If we believe that we know God's truth and that we can embody that truth in a political agenda, we divide the realm of politics into those who are on God's side, which is our side, and those with whom we disagree who oppose the side of God. This is neither good religion nor good politics. It is not consistent with following a Lord who reached out to a variety of people, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers. If politics is the art of compromise, certainty is not really politics, for how can we compromise with God's own truth? Again, the words of Jack Danforth. And so as I read his book in 2006, and then got a chance to know him over the last few years, I was absolutely fascinated. Now, Jack Danforth has not served in the U.S. Senate for 20-plus years. So it's not like he is a guy who is out there every day uh, talking. But I think it would be a good thing if he was. And that's why I'm so happy to be able to bring 60 Minutes of an Interview with Jack Danforth, those of you who've chosen to listen to the show here today. Uh, And and the other thing is, and I could be wrong on this, but he did get back into the headlines in August of 2017 when he wrote an op-ed to the Washington Post, or for the Washington Post, I should say. And he wrote this. Many have said that President Trump is not a Republican. They are correct but for a reason more fundamental than those usually given. Some focus on Trump's differences from mainstream GOP policies, but the party is broad enough to embrace different views. And Trump agrees with most Republicans on many issues. Others point to the insults he regularly directs at party members and leaders. But Trump is not the first to promote self-above party. The fundamental reason Trump is not a Republican is far bigger than words or policies. He stands in opposition to the founding principle of our party, that of a united country. Danforth goes on to say, now comes Trump, who is exactly what Republicans are not, who is exactly what we have opposed in our 160-year history. We are the party of the union, and he is the most divisive president in our history. There hasn't been a more divisive person in national politics since George Wallace. That column was well-received by many, and as you can imagine, it was criticized by many as well. And that column that op-ed in the washington post led to us getting together to discuss not only his op-ed in the washington post and his thoughts on president trump but jack danforth's history jack danforth's opinions of the national discourse jack danforth's opinions of the protests in st louis jack danforth's opinions of the protests in the nfl all of these topics are covered over the next 60 minutes and i think you will find that one of the most deliberate brilliant minds is right here in st louis and he still certainly cares passionately about this country and even if you disagree with him i think you will hear his reasoning behind his opinions uh it is our pleasure to present to you former u.s senator jack danforth here on the tim mckernan show it is my honor and it is our honor as listeners i'm sure to have you join us here on the show um And I just always enjoy talking with you. So I'm just going to probably sit here and listen. And I find it fascinating. Thanks. So the floor. I've been waiting for this. The floor floor is yours. Uh, Jack Danforth, our guest here on the program. Uh, You know, you you made news. You made all kinds of news just about a month ago when you wrote the op-ed in the Washington Post uh, saying that. President Donald Trump is the most divisive political figure in the United States since George Wallace. So if you could take me back to the thought process that led to that piece appearing.
1: Well, it was a volcanic eruption. I, this has been something that's been <clears throat> boiling inside of me for some time. Uh, I, I think that really the one of the main points of the country, really, and certainly our government is to hold things together, to hold the American people together with all the different interests we have and all the diversity we have in our country and to keep things together. And that to me is also the history of the Republican Party. The Republican Party was created immediately before the Civil War. Our first president was Abraham Lincoln. And his big principle was keeping the union together. It was called the union. And um, so that's been, I think, an ongoing pursuit of America, um, how, to, how, to keep, how to keep ourselves together, and then along comes Trump. And his basic style, which is my primary objection to him, his style is so divisive. He just seems to enjoy pitting people against one another, and so out it came. And I, I, I am a Republican, and so I wrote this as a Republican directed to other Republicans just to say that Donald Trump really does not represent our party. Mm-hmm. He was our nominee, that's for sure. He was elected, that's for sure. But he does not represent our party if our party is the party of Abraham Lincoln, which I think is, is what it is.
0: So it was just you had enough and you sat down to type it. It wasn't, you know, I should write this. Yellow I pad,
1: yellow it. pad. I'm a yellow, oh, you're yellow pad. Padded. Oh, yeah. You're I am. If there were still quill pens, I'd be using them, <laughs> too.
0: And, and out it comes. And the response, overwhelmingly, it struck me. Now, you would know better than I. But overwhelmingly was oh thank god somebody said it is that the response that you felt you got
1: um well it was a mixed response um but it was a response and you write something like that and you you know hope okay well i the point of writing it is for people to read it so you do hope that it will evoke some kind of response and it certainly did both people coming up to me one on one and also various ways of communicating and um, the response was mixed. The, some people said, "Okay, it's about time. Thanks for saying that. This is, this should have been said a long time ago." <clears throat> and then I, I had critics, and I had critics from both ends of the political s- spectrum. I had critics from people who were the Trump supporters, and they thought that I had, you know, wrongly turned against their guy. And I also had critics from the left who basically said, well, you're absolutely wrong. This is the Republican Party. He was your nominee. This is what your party stands for. And by the way, why didn't you do this a long time ago? And, you know, so you're to blame for Donald Trump. So
0: it was a a mystery. Why didn't you do this a long time ago? Because if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me for certain. One of the reasons why you couldn't be outspoken, even if you wanted to be, in 2016, was your relationship with the debate at Washington Post, am I correct?
1: Yeah. I'm a a member of the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is the bipartisan commission that puts on the main event debates, the the final Mm -hmm. debates between the presidential candidates and between the vice presidential candidates. And... Um our commission um took a position sometime, I don't know, maybe in the spring before the election, that uh we we would we would refrain from being active in presidential campaigns individually from taking positions in campaigns. I was already a little bit pregnant at that time. I, I had contributed money to one of our candidates i had since said some negative stuff about trump but um it wasn't it wasn't as widely broadcast as this washington post piece was
0: right what was the reaction from some of your peers who who served in the senate with you not much
1: Really? Not much.
0: Wow, I would have yeah, thought otherwise. Yeah,
1: not much. But that's I didn't as you not much. Well, I'll tell you, I didn't expect anything from people who were active in elective politics right. because I, I knew that that would really put them in a in a in a kind of a suicidal position, <clears throat> but from people who had been in it a little bit. Um, but not, very very little. Um I think a lot of people who are Republicans say, well, okay, so Trump is a Republican, Trump is, is our Republican president, so we've got to rally around the flag for him. My view is the opposite. My view is that if our party becomes identified with Donald Trump, our goose is cooked. I, I just don't think we have much of a future. I, he, you know, He didn't have a majority of Republicans voting in the primaries, and he didn't have a majority in the general election, and he's got uh, approval of roughly 35%. I think it's bumped up a little recently. <laughs> but 35% is, in politics is just not much. So I think I just can't imagine that a Republican Party that identifies with Donald Trump is going to get very far now. It just did in Alabama. But as a national party, I I don't see that.
0: When you have watched the first nine months of his administration, is there anything that you go, okay, I like this? Yeah. Okay. What would those things be?
1: Well, um, I like I very much liked his nomination of Neil Gorsuch Mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court, and I think that's a big thing. You know, I think I think Supreme Court nominations are huge and I I generally agree with the um, more conservative view of the role of the judiciary so I, I did like that um, I I have never gone through you know point by point as various deregulation initiatives but um, generally I, I like to keep the heavy hand of government off the private sector, as far as we can, not entirely, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, so I like the general concept of deregulation. Um, I like the concept of doing something about Obamacare, although that laid an egg at the end. I like the idea of tax reform, for sure. A lot of that depends on the details, of course, but I do like that. So, And I think I made it clear in that op-ed piece that it wasn't that I was being critical of specific policies. What I was being critical of was the very divisive tone of the president, manner of the president, and um, his seeming delight in being a divider.
0: Do you think that strategy... Like, like, for example, the most recent thing, and, and by the time this airs, who knows what's happened since, but the most recent thing being the comments regarding the NFL players, uh, calling them sons of bitches, you're fired, you're fired, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and like, I look at that, and maybe I'm giving him too much credit, and by credit I mean credit for the strategy of just trying to rally the proverbial base, but it really isn't something that he truly cares about. Who knows? Yeah, you can't. You know, I don't know
1: him. I, I think it's the result that counts. You know, not what exactly what's going on in the man's head, but I think that the result is very, very divisive, and it's almost uniform. I mean, just pick the group, and he's he's attacking it, and you wonder why this is the president of the United States. I mean, what what is it with this person, and what kind of I mean, if this is going to be sort of the manner of future presidents, what are we doing? What, what's what's the model that's being
0: created here? So I, I think it's just it's just terrible. How do you think we got here? Because, as you mentioned, there was criticism. I suppose I had to look for it. But criticism of your piece saying, well, you stood by as this process led to this result. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when I in reading your book. Uh, books Uh, You spoke of specifically when you arrived in Washington DC of how it was Understood that you were going to reach across the aisle how you would socialize with members of the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. And now it seems like you made reference to it's suicidal to Get in line with somebody on the other side Mm -hmm. But what took place between the mid 70s and where we are now to get to this point in your opinion? Well um I
1: think that I, th- well, for one, I think that it is a lot of it's media driven. I uh, I think that a lot of it is that it's all become too hot. I think too we, hot meaning meaning politics has become too too hot. It just like a too game. much, too much. Uh-huh. I mean, you turn on. Okay, so you turn on. And I'm not a social media guy, so my my understanding of it is that that's even more sort of bombastic. But if you turn on the news networks, I think it's too much. I, I just think 24 hours of news is too much, and it saturates you with politics. And the politics is presented in this breathless manner. So, you know, everything is breaking news. I mean, try to watch a news broadcast without breaking news, okay? <laughs> so, it's everything is breaking, everything is urgent, and most of it is about politics. So, it's as though we can't escape. And, you know, I've just, I've had this discussion many times with my wife, Sally, and she just said, well, I just, I'm not going to watch, I can't look. I can't listen to this stuff anymore. And I, I think that's kind of healthy to say life is more than politics. Mm -hmm. And then when it, when it interferes with interpersonal relations, so the Thanksgiving dinner effect, you know, and the families just breaking up over what, over politics. And um, this huge percentage of college students saying that they unfriended somebody who voted the different way in the last election. So it's as though politics has kind of intruded on the entirety of of life. And then the political activists have become very hot and uncompromising. So their message to people in politics is, you know, you just really gotta be a hardliner or we're going to oppose you in a primary. Yeah. It just happened in Alabama.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So so the message to people in politics is don't get along with the other side. Don't try to reach any kind of agreement with the other side. So right now you've got the polls of the two political parties controlling the office holders and the candidates for office and all of that i think is part of you know a, a big picture which is dysfunction i mean it's politics that doesn't function because it's just the statement of kind of non-negotiable positions in order to appease the base so there's no
0: possibility of working things out And since that really was such a big part of your success in Washington and throughout your career, I would wager, and of course this is a complete hypothetical, but if you take the Jack Danforth of the mid-70s, 1980s, early 90s, and put you in an election position in 2017, I don't think you have a chance.
1: Well, we'll never find out. Uh, not with not with my current wife. We're not, we're not gonna, I'm not saying you're reconsidering
0: a we're coming gonna, out of retirement like Jordan or anything like that. No, but uh, but what I'm no, saying I, is your style know. wouldn't play. You know what the though? Thing. Yeah, I think the
1: problem, that's likely the case. Which is, a but shame. in my fantasy world, uh-huh. you know, I mean, do I? sort of imagine, okay, if I were active in politics, what would I be doing? And I just wonder whether it wouldn't work if somebody were to run for office and the basic theme was politics is broken, government is dysfunctional, it's not working, it is too angry, it's too over the top politics requires compromise mm-hmm. and working things out not polar extremes the center has to be reconstituted in american politics i'm wondering if that whether whether that would work and you know i kind of bet it would i kind of bet it would but it's dangerous to try it mm-hmm. because you know that you will get a primary opponent mm-hmm. if you if you
0: try that let's let's get back to you and in your thought process on the whole thing you said your wife sally has tuned it out i know my wife just like i don't want to watch it it makes that me think f- a lot of people yeah but then we're not learning but then at the same time when we learn i feel like one of the reasons why i feel like there's i mean there's multiple reasons but two things i observe if i watch fox news and you watch msnbc or cnn depending on your perspective yeah. I'm getting one set of stories and you're getting another. And so I'm going, well, you're saying this, Jack. You're saying something that's false. And you're going, no, Tim, you're saying something that's false. And I feel like that's one of the core issues. Then that leads to if there is a discussion, there is no civil discourse or it's lessened because people think the other person is making something up. Yeah, and
1: there was a very interesting book written a number of years ago by a man named Bill Bishop, and it was called The Big Sword. And it's how we have sorted ourselves as a people into various camps of people who think just the way we think. So you can do that because instead of having, you know, like three sources of news, the network news kind of thing on TV, now you've got very specific, ideologically defined sources of news. So, you can so if you're a conservative, you can turn on Fox, Democrat, you can turn on MSNBC. And it's, it's true across somehow as we've had more sources of information and also more rapid transportation, the sense of community is lost and the sense of everybody sort of being thrown together in one big stew is lost so we sort ourselves into people who think just the way we do and that that reinforces our our thinking
0: yeah but for for the news outlets right now it's a profitable model so i don't really know what would change it you know like i watch cnn now and i see it's all donald trump all the time they're not doing that if it isn't quote unquote working from a ratings perspective to increase advertising revenue so, the gatekeepers of information can be providing misinformation in the interest of profits.
1: Well, I don't have an answer to it. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that's where we are. Right. But I do think, I do think, you know, I do think that there's such a thing as culture. Like, you know, I don't mean, you know, the pinky in the air with a teacup, right. meaning culture. but I think that there there is culture. that is, there are community standards, there are sort of the basic tone that's created by the people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that eventually politicians listen to that, and I'm sure media must also. So if you think, well, what could be done to fix this? Well, I think it's much more civic engagement on the part of just ordinary people, you know, Mm -hmm. just good souls, and particularly participation in primary elections by people not just the total, you know, true believers, Mm -hmm. but the average person. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important, and I think people speaking out and and You know turning off the diatribes So, I mean that's a tall order of course saying okay. Well, what do we do? <laughs> we change it, change the culture But I do think that you know in the end Politicians the media do respond to the basic tone out there in the
0: country So let's talk about the tone and we can see it here locally Uh, whether it be the protests that have gone on in St. Louis throughout the St. Louis area, not just downtown or three, four years ago in Ferguson, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the tone of the country with uh, football players over the past weekend kneeling. Mm -hmm. When you see these things, what is your reaction? Well, um, so let's just
1: talk about St. Louis for the moment mm-hmm. I, I'm just telling you personally I love St. Louis I love it three times in my life I have moved back to St. Louis once I was when I was a young lawyer I was practicing in New York moved back was in the Senate why did I leave the Senate very simple I wanted to come home This is home to me. It's my place. I think that there are just many, many people in our town who feel just that way. It's their place. They love it. You know, and this is a dozen years ago, but we had this thing going called St. Louis 2004. It was kind of, it was using the Centennial of the World's Mm -hmm. Fair for Pacific improvement. So... We took a serve, just an informal survey. We'd go out with clipboards and just talk to people that we would catch here and there, shopping centers and so on. And one of the questions we asked was, what do you like about St. Louis? And they said, well, we like to live here. It's just as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And I think... Most, the over, in my view, the overwhelming majority of the people of our town are really good people. And they, they like their community and they want to live here and they believe it's a good place to live. So you think about sports teams. I'm not talking about the kneeling thing, but mm-hmm. just in general about sports teams. What is it about sports teams that's important? What's important about, say, the Cardinals? What's a big deal about that? It's a civic pride thing. Or the blues, I'd right. like to put in a little plug. Absolutely. For the <laughs> team, but um, well, why, why are the Cardinals more important than going to the movies? I mean, they're both entertainment sources, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But people want to put on their red stuff. And they want to put the sticker on their back of their car. And they have pride in it. Even though these players, none of them are from here. But it's the hometown team, mm-hmm. and it's pride of the home team. If an athlete wants to get a sure round of applause, compliment the people in the stands. Yeah. So that's my feeling, that we are we live in a good place and we're proud of this place and we love this place and we're good people and we're fair-minded. So when there are some of our citizens who feel estranged and feel, well, we're being abused and we're really not part of it, well, that's, that's wrong. So we've got to fix that. We've got... This is a community. So we've got any, any break fissure in the community. We've got to fix that. We've got to mend it. So how do we make how do we help African Americans in St. Louis believe and because it's true, that they are just full fledged respected honored people in our community. And so I think a lot of this when you see you know whatever a protest it's people saying we're not being treated as full fledged members of this community. We're not being treated fairly. So we got to fix that. We got to fix it. So what happened to the Ferguson report? I don't know. I'd have to dust it off again but I think for the average person in our town they're not mean so they'd say okay let's do something let's fix something is it is it better police training is it body cameras whatever it is is it schools transportation whatever it is let's fix that because we all are one and I think we realize that we all are one on the other side of that, <clears throat> there are people, and you just hear it a lot, right? Read it in the newspaper, people asserting that well, we're racists, you know? That say, well, St. Louis is racist. Well, we have a history of racism, well, we have racist people. Obviously. Our past and present aren't perfect. But it's really wrong to tar the average good soul in our town with a broad brush of racism. It's just awful to do it. And it's counterproductive. Because if we are holding ourselves together... And if we are going to try, okay, let's address whatever the problem, police, you know, oversight, whatever it is, let's address it. I think people say, yeah, let's do that. Okay, that's good. But once you say, well, all these people are racists, it's very similar to what damaged Hillary Clinton so much in her campaign. When she talked about essentially white rural people as the basket of deplorables, people don't want, and it's not so. It is not so. The average person, people out there working on your bar right now, Mm -hmm. you'd love them if you just talked to them. Yeah, yeah. And they'd say, you're just some hateful person. No, they're not. Right. So what do I think I've gone on too long, but what do I think? I think that this is a community. And our goal should be to hold ourselves together as a community. And the way to do that is to work on stuff, real stuff, that would make it clear and improve the ability of all people and particularly african americans to believe that they are
0: just full-fledged honored protected members of our community i have so much to ask out of that and i hope i don't forget any of it let me let me start with this one out of what you just said one of the things that has emerged as a talking point for certain in a discussion over the last few years i don't know how much ferguson contributed to it i don't know how much the rams moving back to los angeles contributed to it um is st louis city and st louis county merging what is your opinion of that well i
1: don't think that's going to happen i uh, maybe it will to me it would be a good idea but i think that there's probably so much opposition to actual legal merger that it's probably not going to happen but there are things that could be done short of legal political merger of the of the entities for example what one of the products of saint louis 2004 was the greenway district in both both sides of the river really but it provided for a sales tax to support the greenways Mm -hmm. and the parks Mm um and it involved three counties and in our involved St Louis City county St Charles County on our side of the river and it was a taxing district and that kind of thing is a kind of de facto merger without the legal merger
0: so do you think it just wouldn't happen because it would be not voted for or it can't yeah, happen I think,
1: through- no I think it's likely that it would it probably didn't have enough. I don't know. I haven't seen any polls, sure. but it probably would not have sufficient support in the county and in the city. So, but you, you said know, you'd like to see it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it would be good for us to to rationalize our system here, and and then, like, when I go to the airport a lot, and you know, I so the way I go to the airport is on one seventy. And so you go through, you know, like every oh my 200 gosh. yards, yeah. there's some <laughs> municipality population 380, you know.
0: So it's crazy. Yeah. You made reference to something that I feel like really is a problem. And, and it gets thrown as a talking point, I feel like. But then I watched, for example, the Emmys a couple weeks ago. I don't know why I was watching it, but I was. And it essentially became not just ripping President Donald Trump, but almost mocking the people who voted for him, yeah. and I don't think you make progress in getting deals done and winning hearts and minds, so to speak, by calling the opposition stupid.
1: No, I think that's exactly, and or
0: racist, which is even yeah, stronger. yeah.
1: That's the that's the you know the basket of deplorable thing that um, Hillary Clinton got into. So no, I, I don't think you do. But, you know, I mean, I've been really critical about Trump and the divisiveness of Donald Trump. But I also think that there, if the goal is to hold ourselves together, and I think that is the goal, there is a lot of blame to go around. So people who tar good people with a broad brush of being racist they are contributing big time to the divisiveness yes, yes. In, our, in our community. And look, as I said, I, I'm a Republican. I was writing for Republicans, but I could easily write a piece criticizing the Democrats, particularly the way they have really made the U.S. Senate, where I was for a long time, dysfunctional they have and they call it the resistance and i i think that a lot of the trashing of donald trump he's not my kind of guy but a lot of the trashing of donald trump is so relentless and so over the top that it's it, it's it's just overdone. i mean i kind of expect that when he Lights the national Christmas tree. He's going to be trashed for, well, wait a second, you didn't turn on enough lights. <laughs> I mean, it's just I think I mean, if I think the Democrats would do a great service by trying to work with the President, not just opposing him, not just opposing all of his nominees and this and that, calling themselves the resistance, putting out their demand list for a tax bill, 48 solid votes against everything. I mean, if you think, as I do, that the U.S. Senate is the place where difficult issues get worked out. That's the way it did work. Mm -hmm. They don't get worked out if you have a party-line fierce opposition, knee-jerk opposition to everything the Republicans do and everything the president does. So, yeah, I think there's a lot A blame to
0: go around for um, the sort of fracturing that we have. What do you think of Senator John McCain and the position that he has taken on a variety of issues? All while, of course, dealing with the significant health situation. Um, I would imagine you know him. Oh sure, yeah,
1: no, I I served with him and uh, do know him. I, I certainly admire him. I mean, anybody who can be. A prisoner of war for five and a half years and could come out of that intact, whole, is really admirable. So John McCain is is admirable. He is a contrarian. He is always has been? Yeah. Yeah. He's he is a contrarian who knows the effect that his um, illness has on what he says or what he does. I don't know that. But, uh, no, I, I, I admire John McCain. And I also, his idea, of the, what they call the regular order, that is re, returning to the system that, that you learn in grade school, how does a bill become a law, yeah. <laughs> returning to that which has now been just done in I think that's that's basically a good concept. But I don't know how you make that concept work if there's an ironbound of 48 Democratic senators who are going to oppose everything.
0: Turning to you personally in your career, I, I've read, but I want to know what the truth is. How close were you to being George W. Bush's running mate?
1: I don't know. It's curious. I've never figured it out. It's... Um, so I was approached and I said I'll think about it You were, were you approached by Dick Cheney wasn't he in charge of the yeah I think he was the one who called me probably yeah um, <clears throat> there was a guy named Bob Teeter who was a friend of mine he was a pollster now deceased he was involved in this and um Then I said, I don't want to do this, and I told him I want my name out of it, and then I started getting phone calls from various Republicans I know, so then I said, okay, if he wants me, he can have me. And then um, Cheney was the head of the search committee. He ended up finding himself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and when but the Cardinals need... are looking for a broadcaster, <laughs> I am going to be the chair of the search committee for the Cardinal Broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing.
1: <laughs> but uh, no, they, he came by in the Halliburton plane and picked Sally and me up at Lambert and flew us up to Chicago where W. was making the speech. And we spent about three hours just George W. Bush, then Governor Bush. mm mm-hmm and sally and jack danforth just talking about this and that and i came out of that thinking well Pete probably will pick me but uh <laughs> i don't regret it
0: <laughs> that i literally have that in my notes i only have a handful of questions that i actually typed out because i knew we would just kind of converse but i would wonder first off i didn't know what actually happened but then secondarily if you turned it down, mm-hmm. and then if you sit there and you go, ah, I wish I would have done it, but it doesn't sound like no. necessarily that that was the case.
1: No, I. You know what? I didn't. I never. I never pined for that level. I, I just really didn't. How rare is that? That honor. that in of itself.
0: I feel like so many people yeah. get into it hoping to get
1: there. Yeah, but it. It to me, it would have been preemptive of the rest of my life. I'll tell you what tipped me over when I called them and said, I, I don't want to be considered. I, I, I Well, it's kind of a funny little story if you want to hear oh, it. Oh, of course it just, I do. You'll probably edit it right out. But. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, okay. So I went to Princeton and um, the, the then president of Princeton was a man named Bill Bowen, and I I knew him. He was a graduate graduate student when I was an undergraduate. And George Shultz was the Secretary of State. And George Shultz is a former, but also a graduate of Princeton. So Bowen called me up, and he said we were living in Washington. So we had this house in Washington. And we had dogs, okay? We've always had dogs. So we had dogs. And so Bowen calls me up and says, would you have just come over to your house because I want to meet with them and I want to meet with them in some place where it's not public. So I said, sure. So then we had him over. But it turns out when the Secretary of State shows up, it's not just the Secretary of State. It's the Secretary of State and his security detail. And his security detail, some of them were standing in our backyard. And I thought, Oh no, <laughs> because we have dogs, you know, and and, and they'll be yeah. trooping around and <laughs> dog pooping. So it was in my mind I woke up one night and I when this was going on and I was I thought, Oh my gosh, we're gonna have
0: people in our backyard.
1: <laughs> so I called him and said, I don't,
0: want, oh, I don't no. want to do this. So the reason Dick Cheney is vice president is because of your backyard.
1: <laughs> well and I got back in and I sort of thought, well, you know, I, that's kind of selfish of me. <laughs> but God. No, I, I I don't I don't I mean why did I leave the Senate? It was to come home. Right. Yeah, and it was St. Louis's home. But it's also I didn't want being a politician to just define me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think once you're in it at that level, it just defines the entire rest of your life. Yeah. There's, no, there's no ordinary future. You're not going to go to the movies and buy popcorn and that kind of thing. You, you're just not going to do that. It's just, there's the vice president or there's the former vice president and that to me was not
0: not an appealing it's it's to me that strikes me as what i would think would be such a minority viewpoint i could be wrong what do i know i post a sports talk radio show so i'm i couldn't be more detached but i would think so many people like wow if i'm vice president if he's successful then perhaps i can be president and yeah. clearly that, I mean, you haven't even mentioned that part of it. I, clearly that wasn't something that was on your mind. You wanted to be able to go to the movies and have your privacy.
1: Right. And I thought, you know, I mean, obviously if you're vice president, by the time, you know, I was also considered by his father. And at that time I was younger. Now when, so when W came along what year was that? Oh, uh, four. The two thousand. Two thousand. The two thousand election. Okay, so two thousand election. So I was sixty-four, or right. something like that. Sixty-five at that time. And so at that, when you are sixty-five, you think, well, no, Trump was elected right. president after seventy. But at that time, I thought, no, I probably. But I, it wasn't. It wasn't anything I really pined for.
0: Yeah, I mean, clearly it doesn't sound like it was something that you even think about without me bringing it up.
1: No, but I mean, as I said, you know, I mean, so you're in politics and you think, wow, do I ever have great ideas? Do I ever have, (laughs) I mean, wouldn't the country be better if everything I thought was the law, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but well, that's my point. That's kind of what I yeah. think. I'm like, the, that's the thing. I was I was texting with somebody I know you went to a Cardinal game with recently, Derek Gould. And yeah. he saw that we were doing an interview. Yeah. And I said to Derek, I said, I think the world would be a better place if Jack Danforth were vice president in 2000. And I know that's putting a lot on you. <laughs> but of course, it's a compliment because yeah. I think some things that wound up happening may not have happened. And so that's why I wonder if you sit there as, as plugged in as you are and as passionate as you are, if you go ah you know but if if that that's not where you are no i i i don't well i don't regret
1: it and i don't really think about it yeah I mean, clearly you know,
0: i think about it more than you do yeah. <laughs>
1: but it's kind of funny you know but it's it's um uh, no
0: yeah so I asked you about the the NFL protests and I'm curious because I, 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 a lot of times you'll ask somebody, and you kind of think, you know, where they're going to go on this one. I'd be re- I, I have no idea what your thoughts are on it when you see that. Yeah, uh, it's certainly when we were sitting here in a sports talk radio station, a topic. Yeah. Um, when you see it, what do you think? Now, I felt like it's just I feel like the the one that took place most recently was in response to President Trump's comments on the Friday at the speech in Alabama, because beforehand it had essentially been Colin Kaepernick and a handful of other guys. And I I have
1: mixed thoughts about it. I I mean, first of all, I just can't imagine why Trump waded into this thing and stirred it up and not just stirred it up to keep stirring and keep stirring and. It's um I, I think that it's part of the general divisiveness of Donald Trump to do it and so I think that was a mistake. I don't think people who participated in this are unpatriotic. I do not think that. I think that they share with a lot of African Americans a sense that, particularly the police but maybe more generally in society that they're not being treated equally and justly so i i do understand that and i think that's something for us to work on i i don't think that using the national anthem as the protest mechanism is a great idea because I think it's kind of like, you know, so what's the importance of a sports team? We all, in a community, we all rally around the sports teams. A national anthem, 50,000, 40,000, whatever the people stand up at one time. Doesn't matter what their politics are. It's just a uniform thing to do. So to somehow have that uniform thing to do become a point of divisiveness I don't think that's a great thing, but I don't, I don't hold it against the players. And I think that, as I said earlier, the idea of working constructively on some things that we can do to make things better is what, where we should be, where we should be focusing.
0: And when we look toward the future. I'd be curious because I know you have your finger on the pulse of, for example, statewide politics and people that you find to be the future. Um, Who do you see out there on the landscape that you go, I feel like that person there could really be or multiple people? Yeah.
1: Um, I'm a big fan of Josh Hawley, who's our state attorney general, and um, he's... pretty sure, going to be running for the U.S. Senate. I think Josh Hawley is um, a -a once-in-a-generation type person in politics. He is really smart and broad-gaged. He wrote a book um, about Theodore Roosevelt that was published by the Yale University Press when he was 28 years old. I mean he's just an exceptional person and i think he would add to the senate as a, as a conservative but he would add sort of the the intellectual weight that pat moynihan did when he was in the senate holly is a genuine scholar and and also a terrific vote getter but I think that he is very, very unusual. I've known him since he was a law student. Mm. I was introduced to him. I went up to Yale Law School, where both of us went to law school, and and uh, the dean had a dinner party for me, and he said, I'm going to sit you next to this third-year student named Josh Hawley. And he said, he's the head of the Federalist Society, which is the Conservatives he's more conservative than almost anybody else at Yale Law School. Not hard. <laughs> Not <laughs> hard to be. But, but he said he is just such a good person and he's interested in politics and he's from your state. I want you to meet him. And that was my first meeting with, with Josh. And then, you know, he, both he and his wife, Erin, clerked for Chief Justice Roberts on the Supreme Court. That's Kind of the hardest job to get that's for the real heavyweights coming out of law school yeah. and um then he he taught and she still does teach at mu law school so he's the real deal and you know there's there's a lot that along with everybody else that turns me off on politics but when i Josh Hawley is sort of my passion right now. He's the he is the guy who, to me, exemplifies what can be good about government and uh, about politics.
0: Well, that's encouraging to hear. You identify somebody that you feel like mm-hmm. he would be, and so he has not announced that he is running, but you feel like it's likely that he will. I think we're in the countdown mode yeah. Ah, very nice. What do you think about some of the other statewide politicians you rapport with? For example, Governor Greitens. Do you have a rapport with him? Yeah, I don't know him as well. I've known
1: Josh better by a lot and longer than I've known Eric Greitens. Uh, Greitens is, is very charismatic, you know, in his history, a Rhodes Scholar, Navy SEAL, um, a lot of charisma a lot of a
0: lot of political ability that he has Mm -hmm. and if you had to make a prediction because you were calling your shots on what you thought was going to happen in the 2016 election people look ahead what do you think is going to wind up happening in 2020 i realize we're in 2017 but what do you think will wind up do you think donald trump will run for a second term if not, it's Mike Pence step. <laughs> I wish there was video. Where Where is the video? I wish there was video. when I said that. <laughs> and there's talk of I, I, people thinking, you know what, maybe Joe Biden would it would actually get back in on the Democratic side. And I know you, even though you're on the other side of the aisle, I know you respect him.
1: Yeah, I like Joe. I mean... He's a contemporary of mine. So.
0: <laughs> I, I see I see what you're saying there, too.
1: <laughs> I pick up a lot of physical reads. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, who knows? You know, I had an interesting discussion. It doesn't really amount to anything, but... So this is before the election, and I didn't think Trump was going to win, but I just happened to run into a man who's a practicing psychiatrist. And I, I asked him what he thought about Trump, and he said, well, of course, you know, he's, I have examined him and I couldn't tell you if I had, and so on and so forth. But he said, I don't think he wants to, to win. And I don't know, but maybe say that's true. Maybe he won and didn't want to. And now what? So maybe he doesn't want to run for a second term. Who knows? I don't know Donald Trump. I don't know what's in his mind, but I, I just can't tell you.
0: Yeah. As I as I look around, you know, when we have these discussions, people love hearing from you. People love. I know you say, oh, people don't want to hear. I'm telling you. And I said I was interviewing Jack Danforth. They love hearing from you. This is from Democrats and from Republicans. They feel like you're the voice of reason mm-hmm. and there aren't a whole lot of those out there right now. <laughs> yeah. There
1: would be mixed opinion on that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah there would be mixed opinion on that. Who do you turn to in 2017 and go I'm curious what he or she has to say or or write to perhaps point some of the people listening to this going there's a person outside of a guy we know from the St. Louis area that would be providing perspective. Well,
1: I don't know, you know I mean I've, I've been out so long and like the governors and the sitting members of the Senate, most of them I don't know. I mean, I've been out now since '94, mm-hmm. so it's I'm. I don't know the cast of characters, so I I can't answer that. I'm, I am what I think of as a traditional Republican. You know, I mean, I'm certainly not a populist, but I'm my I am the people I served with like howard baker and bob dole and people like that were terrific public servants and i think had a very good view of the role of government so that's what i personally would look for i don't Mm -hmm. know who's going to be running but somebody who's a more traditional republican meaning they believe in trying to keep taxes low and government regulation light and they believe in a strong national defense and Sort of the typical stuff for Republicans.
0: That's what I would be looking for And as you've written about what some consider to be typical stuff for Republicans in recent years has been mm-hmm. Mixing religion mm-hmm. With the platform. Are you surprised to see the staunch support evangelicals have given President Trump?
1: Um, yes, it's I can't put myself in their shoes I don't know quite what they're thinking, but yes. Because I think, to me, so the meaning of religion, the, the root of that word religion is holding things together. It's from the same word as ligament. Same root as ligament. Hmm. It means to hold things together. And I think that Christians especially... I mean, Jesus prayed that we all may be one. And the epistle of the Colossians says that, you know, in Christ all things hold together. So if you believe that religion means holding things together, and if you believe that the role of government is to hold this diverse country together, then I don't understand Cottoning up to a president or a politician who wants to
0: do just the opposite, mm-hmm. and and no matter what, it seems like that support is there. And I and I just I watch that and I'm fascinated by it. I can't figure it out. Obviously, you're not sure either, but it plays a role in in the election. Yeah,
1: I, I don't I don't understand. I'm I'm not like a sociologist of religion. I, I don't know. i would mm-hmm. have to really talk to a lot of people and surveys and so on and find out what's on people's mind. But it just strikes me, you know. Jack Danforth, and I am a Christian, and practicing so, it strikes me as out of sync with what religion is about and what Christianity is all about.
0: Let me get you out of here with some quick hits. I'm always fascinated by presidential history, and I would imagine you've interacted and worked with, what, how many? Four. Worked with four. Probably have you... You no,
1: know, four that I served with and then W, you know, so I sure. was his envoy to Sudan and
0: his ambassador to the UN, so five. Who do you who do you feel you got along best with and made the most headway with in your time?
1: Well, I didn't dislike anybody. I I thought Reagan was terrific. And in retrospect, I think he was terrific. I think he had a lot of good qualities. I think, first of all, he had maybe a handful of really big ideas. So he wasn't in the weeds. Mm -hmm. Carter tended to be in the weeds. And one thing about Reagan is he was just, he was likable. He was likable. Mm -hmm. Mike Deaver, who was his staff guy, said one thing about Reagan is people wanted to please him. Says a lot that somebody is the president of the United States, and you'd basically want to please Mm -hmm. him. And um, he was he was a happy person. There was nothing edgy about Reagan. He was just he was a happy person, and um, and also he accomplished a lot. Wow, I mean, you know.
0: Tax reform and uh, end of the Cold War and all that. George H. W. Bush, a guy who I feel like here with with time passing, even though he only served yeah. one term, there's a greater appreciation yeah. for him. Yeah,
1: really a wonderful person. You know the Bushes are they're they're just decent, thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You know, I had an experience with George H.W. Bush. He had said something, and it I took offense at it. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. I thought, that's not, that's not very nice. So I wrote him a letter. When was this? Was this when he was when president? When he was president, president, I was okay. in the Senate. Yeah, so it was whenever, like in the maybe early 90s. He was the president, and I was in the Senate, and so I wrote him a letter, and I said, I really, I was just offended by that. He sent me, I think it was about two pages long, handwritten letter saying how sorry he was that I'd taken it that way, and he didn't intend it. Can you imagine (laughs) the president of the United States taking the time not to just say to a staff person, write a form letter to this yo-yo, but somebody <laughs> who just takes the time I, to write out a handwritten letter. And that that's characteristic of him. Yeah. He's just a decent, decent human being. Yeah. I think that... That goes a very long way in a president. Were you, close? You, you,
0: you made reference to that you at least had a conversation, I guess, in '87, '88 about being his yeah. running mate? Was that close as well, or was that just, you know, early going?
1: I don't know. He picked, ended up picking Dan right. Quayle, so I, who knows? But I, I think I'm, my understanding it was down to Quayle and me, just like really? it was down to Cheney and me for oh his my gosh. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But I, who knows, you know, okay. I don't know. But, yeah, but I, I
0: I, like him a lot, just mm-hmm. as, a, as a person. It seems around the country there's a greater appreciation for him now, perhaps, than when he left office in 1992. Weird that that works that way somehow. I could be wrong, I could be off on the pulse, but for the manner with which he conducted himself, at the very least, I think people sense that. You know,
1: style is a lot, isn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, this, I think the problem tone... That's the problem with Trump, in my opinion, but it's just a bad tone, but it's really interesting. I read this bi- biography of Washington recently, and washington it wasn't particular policies or he didn't he really wasn't into policies of any kind much, and it wasn't that he was a great military leader except that he held the army together mm. when it was about to go home yeah. but as far as tactician. He made a lot of blunders. But what was it about Washington? He understood. He was the first president and understood that he was going to set the tone for future presidents. And he was in style very aloof. He didn't, you know, Washington didn't like to shake hands with people. Imagine that. (laughs) But it was, he had the sense of dignity and the importance of that in the office of the president. So he was our, you know, the founder. So you compare that to somebody who's calling football players SOBs and talking about his sexual prowess and all that. It's just Really different, so what do I think about bush forty one and forty three all of them well, Clinton had his problem but but the the style, the tone, and the ability to appeal to what's good in the American people
0: mm-hmm. That's what it's all about, yeah. I hope we see that again. Do you think we will? Or do you think that this is what the direction it's going? This is, this is the new normal? I don't think this is normal. <laughs> I, I know. I know I know you don't. <laughs> but do you think that no, now I we're w- going to see I don't more of these?
1: It, no, because I, I do believe the American people are good. I don't think they're angry. They seem so now. People seem angry, but I don't think that's really where people are. Mm -hmm. I think it's the media whips it up and Trump whips it up and various people whip up this anger and they think they're going to get something about making people mad. But I don't think most people just pop out of bed in the morning mad at everybody, They want just to have their lives. Let's get on with it. Mm -hmm. Got to get to work. And um, so I think there's really a decency. Really, it's kind of a theological question. Do you think people are basically good or not? I do. And I think it's possible for politicians to appeal to that goodness. And it's important, and it's maybe the most important thing a politician
0: can do. An absolute pleasure to talk with former U.S. Senator Jack Danforth here on the Tim McKernan Show. I could I could talk to him. I could listen. Actually, I, I wouldn't talk to him. I would sit there and listen to him for hours. I just find his opinions, his experience, his passion for the city of St. Louis, as you heard him describe, uh, for the state of Missouri, and for the United States, uh, to be absolutely admirable. And I also respect uh, what I essentially would be his his willingness to say things that, that might not be popular. Uh, he believes them, and therefore, he shares them. Hope you enjoyed hearing from Jack Danforth here on the show, and we always want, and we always want your feedback, uh, positive or negative. Ideally, it's kept civil, but nonetheless, I always want your feedback, whether it be for guest recommendations, for your thoughts on the interviews themselves. Uh, email me, please, McKernan at insidestl.com, T.M.C.K.E.R.N.A.N at InsideSTL.com, and uh, perhaps your recommendation for an upcoming guest is something that uh, the Sea Monster, John Seymour, a producer, and I will use, and uh, you'll be hearing from that person. We love doing long-form interviews. That's essentially the basis for the show, and uh, to be able to sit down with a man uh, as esteemed as Jack Danforth was an honor and hopefully a great listen for those of you who have uh, sat back and, and listened to our 60 Minutes with Jack Danforth coming up in our next edition Clay Travis sits down with us and talks about his career we don't really get into SEC football we don't really get into all of the stuff that necessarily you see on Outkick the coverage we get into Clay himself uh, he's certainly become a uh, national uh, topic not just in the sports world but in the world of politics as well uh, so that interview is uh, coming up next here on the Tim McKernan Show. We sincerely appreciate you finding us and making sure that you listen. And we look forward to bringing you more interviews and our opinions here on the Tim McKernan Show as we go. Thank you for tuning in. And we look forward to bringing it to you again next week with Clay Travis.